The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Paul's second letter to the church at Thessalonica. And I'd like us to read this text where we find the theme for these many months of study in these Thessalonian letters. And if we could start our reading today at verse number 3, we can contextualize the verses for today's message. And I want us to pay particular attention to verse number 6. That will be the subject of the message today. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse number 3. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren as it is meet or as it is fitting, because that your faith groweth exceedingly, and the charity of every one of you all toward each other aboundeth, so that we ourselves glory in you in the churches of God for your patience and faith in all your persecutions and tribulations that ye endure, which is a manifest token of the righteous judgment of God, that ye may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which ye also suffer." seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. And to you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power, when he shall come to be glorified in his saints and to be admired in all them that believe, because our testimony among you was believed in that day. The familiar theme of our study is the second coming of Christ. It's the realization of this promise that Christ made before he was crucified, that he would return to this, to this world it's the fulfillment of frequent Old Testament prophecies that were written hundreds of years before the Son of God became incarnate. And the subject of Christ's return comes before Paul again in this second letter because of continuing confusion in the church about the Lord's return. And this was because the, the church experienced severe persecution. These troubling times to them seem to characterize the end times the last days of tribulation that Paul said the church was surely to escape. And so there was confusion about what would happen to living Christians at the return of Christ and what would happen to those that had already died. And in the first letter, in chapter 4, there's just this wonderful explanation the apostle gives of the hope of Christ's coming. And Paul gave that to the church for, for comfort. He said that Christ will come and he will raise the dead and he will change the bodies of those that are living and will take both up to be with him in heaven. And throughout the first letter, in every chapter, there are references to this great event. And then further, in chapter 5, Paul distinguished this raising of the dead and the rapture of the living from the second part of Christ's return, which he calls the day of the Lord or the day of Christ. Now, the day of the Lord 
is a time of terrible destruction in which God will just wreak havoc on this sinful world and his vengeance will come upon unbelievers. Paul told the church that they wouldn't go through that terrible time. But in the second letter, the confusion seems to remain. The persecution was still there. And they were concerned about why God allowed them to suffer so much. Had they misunderstood Paul's first letter? Did they misunderstand the teaching? And was this persecution they were going through? Is that indicative of the end times that they were living in the last times? Now, soon we'll see that as Paul goes into the second chapter, there are events that will happen during the tribulation that they hadn't seen. There is destruction that is coming that will be preceded by certain events that hadn't yet happened. And he says, you won't see happen. So the answer to their question is, no, the present distress that they're in is not the day of the Lord. But it does have its purpose. Now, in this part of the letter, Paul tells them why they suffer. He, he tells them what God is doing and what is accomplished by terrible experiences. And I'm sure that's a question that many of you ask. Why do Christians suffer? It's a very common question and that has been throughout, throughout history. If God's favor is on us, if we are his children, if he loves us, then why does it seem that the world does so much better than us? And the answer comes in two words, vengeance and vindication. Persecution reveals the righteous judgment of God uh, on people that are wicked. That's in vengeance. And our steadfastness through that persecution vindicates and proves that we are truly God's people. Now, in this passage, Paul will talk about both believers and unbelievers. He speaks of the present distress that these believers go through. And then he talks about their rest. He tells them to rest. And God will bring rest to them. But he also talks about the future in which there is retribution against the wicked. Now, I hope that you remember last week in our discussion of verse number 5, that Paul explained the sufferings of God's people are evidence they belong to him. And we might wish that God would use some other proof, but it's through this endurance and patience of believers through trials that, that God makes his people or proves his people worthy of his kingdom. Now, that, that's certainly not the most popular method of assurance. And we wish that, well, maybe God would use some other method, but persecution and, and suffering and trials that we go through turn out to be the, the greatest method, the most effective method that God uses because it pushes us towards total dependence on him. We must seek God to help us to get through. And thus, in many passages of the New Testament, the church is told that suffering is God's design, that he uses Suffering to increase our faith and cause us to be dependent on him and to let us know that we can do nothing without him. Recently, I read a quote from Glenn Scribner. He said, God's first promise was for the man of heaven to descend to save us. Humanity's plan is to ascend to heaven and make a name for ourselves. That's the world's thinking. And God wouldn't have his people to have any part of it. We're helpless and we are proved helpless by the impossibility of doing anything without God. And so Paul says your afflictions, your persecutions, your suffering, those are evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now as we go on to verse number 6, there is a promise 
that God will deal with those who cause this horrible heartache to his people. Though the sovereign God is the one that raises the enemy, and though he is the one that hardens their hearts against him and against his people, the result will be the same as it was when he dealt with Pharaoh in the Old Testament. Paul explains the purpose of Pharaoh's entire existence in the world. He sums it up in Romans 9.17, For the scripture saith unto Pharaoh, Even for this same purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Do you see the same thought in verses 9 and 10 of this text? God's enemies will be punished and God's name will be glorified in all of the earth through his saints. And Pharaoh's signature defeat in the Old Testament is the event that struck terror into the hearts of Canaanites. It was Israel's God who did this. They knew it. And that caused God's people to be feared wherever they went. They knew that Israel's God was a different God. And here Paul says the same will happen to you. God will be glorified in his saints. God's power will be known and you will share in it because you believed and you are faithful. Now in verse number 6 there is a statement of this truth. And this statement is the subject of the message today. This is first on your listening sheet, the only point, in fact, on the listening sheet today, the righteousness of retribution. The righteousness of retribution. Verse 6 says, seeing it is a righteous thing with God to recompense tribulation to them that trouble you. Other translations say the same thing in different words. God considers that it is just for him to repay, repay by afflicting those who trouble you. Now the fact that God renders judgment against his enemies is never in doubt. He will recompense. And that word means that he will repay in kind those that afflict you. Now I think this problem of affliction, persecution, suffering, that's always been a, a sore spot for believers. It, it's a, a paradox that we need to get over. The question was asked in the Psalms, why do the wicked prosper? How can the wicked go on and treat us as they do without punishment? And the answer comes back soundly, they can't. It looks good for them now. It looks like they, they have the upper hand against us now, but it will not stand. God won't let it stand. Jonathan Edwards wrote that surely their feet, the persecutor, those who harms us, surely their feet are on slippery ground. They will fall. They will be brought to desolation. He said in a moment they will be consumed with terror. He quoted from Deuteronomy that perfectly agrees with this point of our passage. God said to me belongeth vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. The time of this recompense is coming. The vengeance of God is on them. And that happened to be the psalmist's conclusion after he thought about it some more. After he thought about what God does, he considered the end of the wicked, and he saw that their repayment is coming. So he wrote in Psalm 73, Surely thou didst set them in slippery places... Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terror. Psalm 73, verses 18 and 19. 
Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. This is common in Scripture, this recompense of God. The prophet Nahum describes it succinctly. He wrote, God is jealous and the Lord revengeth. The Lord revengeth and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries and he reserveth wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord hath his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Do you see this? The Lord will have his vengeance. He never acquits the wicked. That day is coming. Nahum goes on to say that the Lord is slow to wrath. Sometimes it appears that God will do nothing. We wait and we wait and we think, will God ever answer? Will God ever do anything? And we, we think it's not going to happen. And it might not be timely according to us, but we always remember we serve a timeless God. God will do what he says he will do. We see it here in our text. God waits. He bides his time. He raises the oppressor and lets him have his way for a time. And as he does, he uses that oppressor to test the mettle of his people. Then he destroys the wicked because of what they do. Again, that is the very same as what he did with Pharaoh. He raised Pharaoh to be the monarch, the the king of the greatest nation on earth at the time, the greatest in the world. And then, after God raised him to show his power in him, God destroyed him for his own glory. That's hard doctrine, isn't it? Hard to imagine this. It's difficult for people who have a false idea about God. They cannot reconcile this, that God does such things. But it's true. And then God says, you can't judge him for it. You can't say that's not right. Who is the, the clay pot that tells the potter, why did you make me this way? God does what he wills. He always does what he wills. And what he does is right. It's right when he uses his creatures for his glory. That's what we're made for. We're made for the glory of God. So we can stop thinking this world is all about us. How great we are. We are made for one purpose, the glory of God. And so God will use us as he sees fit. And this is so clear in Romans 9 as Paul continually quotes abundant Old Testament scriptures to prove God's divine sovereign choices. And it's clear in 1 Thessalonians, as he described, this is what God does for us and what God doesn't do for them. We are light, he says. They are darkness. Christ died for us, not for them. God chooses as he pleases. And Paul will repeat that right here in 2 Thessalonians in chapter 2 in verse number 13. It is God who chooses. Now that's difficult. It defies human reason. People hate God for making decisions like this. They hate this doctrine. And it's exactly what Paul anticipated in Romans 9. And if the doctrine is not as stated, there wouldn't be any protest. In the end, God's ways, his judgments are past finding out. He is simply too far above us. Now, instead of this truth, the truth of divine judgment and repayment for sin... You hear a much different thing preached in most pulpits. In the liberal pulpit today, they actually encourage sin. They encourage sin. They teach that no matter what, love always triumphs. 
no matter what you think that love is, and you can define what that love should be, and that God is tolerant of all lifestyles. That is a shameful denial of the Scriptures because Christ taught in copious passages the reality of the destruction of the wicked. You defy God and His law, there will be retribution. And not only this, but Jesus said that God appointed Him to be the judge to do it. Now, I certainly want you to understand that God loves his people. His protection of his people and the promise to avenge them is proof that he loves them. Christ and his people are wrapped so tightly together that to sin against his people is to sin against Christ. To sin against Christ is to sin against the union with his people. God will repay. This is the message that Paul has given these Thessalonians. He assures them God will always enforce his justice. It's a rule of law that goes back into the Old Testament that we know as lex talionis. It means to repay in kind. You know it simply as an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And the terrible reality of it is that sin has eternal consequences. Sin is against an infinite God and it requires infinite punishment. And so the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, retribution has to be eternal. And this is why I can tell you, you would be very careful. You ought to be very careful when you sin against God. If you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you ought to be thinking right now about your sin and what God will do because of sin. When you sin and you die that way, God's retribution never ends. Now we notice that Paul said God will repay. He says God will recompense. He says retribution belongs to God. It belongs to God, not you. And this is very important when we look into the Old Testament and we see that eye for eye, tooth for tooth type of justice. That is never for the individual. That is not for you to do. First, it's for government authorities to enforce the law with equal justice. But most importantly, it refers to what God does. It's never yours to... to Harm people that harm you. Jesus said, be harmless as doves. He said, we must turn the other cheek. He said, you must pray for those that despitefully use you. So the divine prerogative of justice is not yours, it's not mine. Justice is for God. He must repay because righteousness says that sin must be punished. But it's not righteous for you to do it. You retaliate with anger, I do. We retaliate with selfish motives. But God's punishment is never motivated by anger. Now make no mistake about it. The Bible does say that God is angry at the wicked every day. But anger is not his motivation for justice. Righteousness, justice, and holiness is required because of God's perfect character. That's the divine motivation. You're a sinner. And your motivations will never be perfect. But God's, are. God's motivation is. So Paul didn't say to the Thessalonians, well, I know that they're troubling you. I know there's trouble on every side of you. There are people that are against you. They hurt you. And now I want to explain to you in chapter 2 or chapter 3 how you can set an ambush for them and kill them before they kill you. Some of you might like to do that sometimes, but God says, no, you can't do that. God will take care of it. And it doesn't matter the time that God takes care of it because his justice is timeless. Well, let's understand this. It's right for God to do it. In fact, it's the only right 
People don't want to believe in hell. They don't want to believe in God's justice. They don't want to be in punishment. Uh, believe in punishment. But the Bible says this is the only right there is. This must be done. It's holy. We don't stand for the abrogation of justice in our own justice system. We won't go to the court of law and say it's right for the judge to release the criminal. We want to see the criminal punished, especially those that we think are the worst criminals. We would never stand that the guilty would go free. So how would we expect the most righteous judge in all the universe would not punish sin when it's the holy righteous thing to do? So those who don't preach God's retribution against sin, neither can they preach God's holiness. They serve a different God than the God of the Bible because that God who doesn't punish is neither righteous nor just. Well, of course, then the question will be asked, what about those that God saves? They're also sinners, and God pardons their sin. How does he do that? Hasn't God overlooked their sin? Is, isn't... isn't why isn't he punishing them? And that's a very common mistake. People think that when you get saved and you go to heaven, it's because God overlooks sin. Well, you don't understand God, you don't understand his justice, and you don't understand what Christ did if you think that way. Because God never looks one of the believer's sin. Did you know that? Not even one. God never looks, overlooks the smallest sin of the believer or anyone else. All sin must be punished. How does he do it? Well, it turns out that there is the perfect Son of God who came down from heaven and was without sin. And he came to put the sin of believers on him. So at the cross, God punished his Son for our sins. He was made a sin offering for us. And so by faith in him and the blood of the cross, we are declared righteous as our sins are transferred to Christ and his perfect goodness is transferred to us. Christ puts all of our sins on his account and he puts all of his goodness, all of his righteousness on our account. Folks, that is a simple explanation of this Bible term, justification. It's the full pardon of our sin based only in this, Christ's satisfaction to God's law of divine retribution. Sin is not overlooked. It's never overlooked. It is judged in Christ. He went to the cross and he suffered for us on the cross. If you trust him as your savior, he suffered and died for you. So you see, sin is always punished. It's always punished. God is satisfied for sin according to his justice because he punished it. He punished it in Christ. So be sure of this. You are never going to escape God's judgment without Christ. The Bible says God does not acquit the wicked. Now that's part of the hope that's built into this passage. No one will get by with the pain they cause you. It's justice for them to be punished. Now here's another very strange, odd thing that we find in the Bible. The Bible even includes prayers for the punishment of the wicked. These are called imprecatory prayers. They're prayers of vengeance. So it, it, it seems strange that we are to offer up prayers of salvation for those that are against us. While at the same time, there can be prayers prayed for vengeance for those who harm us. We can ask God to repay, and it's up to God how and when he repays. 
But I'll tell you, you ought to be very careful if that's what you like to pray, imprecatory prayers, prayers of vengeance. If you're not right with God, totally right with God in your heart, I suggest you never attempt an imprecatory prayer. Thank God he doesn't put you in punishment. Because the fact is, God repays in greater ways than you ever could and ever could imagine. Just take some time to read Jeremiah. He's the righteous prophet who did pray imprecatory prayers of vengeance. God honored those prayers. But I would caution you to very carefully check your faithfulness and see if you are a Jeremiah before you try to pray those kinds of prayers. Well, just one more comment about the truth of retribution. I've noted that Jesus told of it many times. He said judgment is committed to him. You also remember he said that if someone harms one of his children, he said it's better that a huge millstone were hanged around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. He said it's better that that would happen because what will really happen is far, far uh, unimaginably worse than having a huge stone tied around your neck and sunk you down to the bottom of the Marianne Trench. Returning to this passage, notice the subjects of retribution. Down in verse number 8, it says, God takes vengeance on those who don't know him. What's the sense that they don't know him? That's a, that's a good question. Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul wrote that all people know God. Did you know that? All people know God. That is innate knowledge in all humans. We all know there is a God. A few weeks ago, Jorge preached on Psalm 14. He correctly made the point that those who deny the existence of God must be educated not to believe because that no person is naturally born that way. Romans chapter 1 explains that ignorance of God is not an excuse because people willingly suppress the innate knowledge of God in them. And this is because God's law is written on the human heart. We know good and evil, but people sin willfully against God because they suppress this knowledge of his law. That leads them into rejection. They reject the one true God. Now, rarely does that ever lead to atheism, although there are some atheists. Most commonly what it does is to lead to idolatry. Might even lead to animism. Now, in case of our Western society and the pseudo-intellectuals of our society, it distills down into an idolatry of self-worship. So the idol is self. Even the prosperity preachers and those who believe in the power of positive thinking, they're nothing but self-worshippers. And so in a sense, all people know there is a God, but they have suppressed this knowledge. Now, in this passage, though, Paul's not talking about that. By this word, no, he means those who have not entered into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He means they don't know him by faith. Further, he goes on to say they don't obey the gospel of Christ. And because of this, there is heightened punishment. Of course, some people don't know Christ because they never heard of him. Nobody's ever given them the gospel. And the person who's never heard of Christ will be punished because they're sinners. They have rejected the knowledge of God's law that's on the heart, but they won't be punished for rejecting Christ because they didn't know about him. Those who have heard and rejected have not obeyed the demands of the gospel to repent and believe, and they are involved in worse 
condemnation. Jesus illustrated the difference between innate knowledge, just having innate knowledge, and then having the rejection, having the knowledge of the gospel, and then to reject it. This is in Luke chapter 12. I'd like you to turn there if you would. Uh, This is the story of two types of wicked servants and their different degrees of punishment. In this story, one servant knows more than the other. Both of them are disobedient. Both disobey the master. But they aren't equal in the knowledge of what they should do. So Jesus illustrates this with this parable. In Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse number 42. And the Lord said, Who then is that faithful and wise steward whom his Lord shall make ruler over his household to give them their portion of meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord, when he cometh, shall find so doing. Of a truth I say unto you, that he will make him ruler over all that he hath. But, and if that servant say in his heart, My Lord delayeth his coming, and shall begin to beat the men servants and the maidens, and to eat and drink and to be drunken, the Lord of that servant will come in a day when he looketh not for him, and at an hour when he is not aware, and will cut him in sunder, and will appoint him his portion with the unbelievers." And that servant which knew his Lord's will and prepared not himself, neither did according to his will, shall be beaten with many stripes. But he that knew not and did commit things worthy of stripes shall be beaten with few stripes. For unto whomsoever much is given, of him shall be much required, and to whom men have committed much, of him they will ask the more." Now, do you see the difference in the punishment of these two servants? One doesn't do what the master requires. He's beaten because of it. The other knows what the master requires, but still he doesn't do it. The first is beaten with few stripes. The second, with more knowledge, is beaten with many. That is an illustration of degrees of punishment. It is according to knowledge. And according to the knowledge of the rejection of the gospel, more sin yields greater punishment. And the very worst sin that can be committed is to hear of Jesus Christ, just as you do today, and walk out of here without trusting him. I've explained many times that theologians have a term for this. They call it aggravated condemnation. It simply means the punishment is worse. So my strongest warning for everyone in this building, for those who might listen to this message by podcast or on video, you have heard the gospel in the message today, and now because you have heard, you have greater responsibility. You must obey the gospel. God commands that all people everywhere repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible calls obedience to the gospel. Now, Hebrews refers to this seriousness of rejection in another way. Very strong terms are used. To reject the gospel is to trample the blood of Christ. Now, I want you to turn there. Hebrews chapter 10. We read it at the opening of our services today. We read from this 10th chapter, and I read these verses just a few minutes ago. The most self-righteous, pious person in the world would never believe he could be accused of trampling the blood of Christ. Oh, he might not trust Christ, but he would insist, I don't have anything against him. I know that he was such a good man. He did a lot of good things. He's a great example. 
I would never, I would never be against Christ. Hebrews begs to differ. Unless you trust Christ, you trample his blood. Now before I read it, notice carefully, it comes immediately after a warning about not going to church. Don't miss that. In verse number 26, For if we sin willfully, after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sin. But a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which shall devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses of how much sorer punishment. See that? Aggravated congregation. Punishment. Suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who had trodden underfoot the Son of God and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace. For we know him that has said, What am I preaching today? Vengeance belongeth unto me. I will recompense, saith the Lord. And again the Lord shall judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now let me just add, by, by way of explanation, that to substitute any method of salvation for grace alone, by faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone, is to trample the blood of Christ. The person who says, well, you must be baptized to be saved. I have a list of sacraments for you to keep and you must do these before you can be saved. That person tramples on Christ's blood. The priest who says, you must go to Mass. You must say the rosary. You need to pray to the saints. He tramples the blood of Christ. Anyone who says that salvation is by any good thing that you do or combinations of good things that you do tramples the blood of Christ. Now, I always like to explain to people that salvation is never, never about what you do for God. Salvation is always what Christ did for you. Now, if you attempt good things to get to heaven, then you say that the blood of Christ is not necessary. Uh, I, I can get there by what I do. The blood is not a requirement. I can save myself. That tramples the blood of Christ. So here's the thing. He says to go on sinning, to live in sin, not to receive Christ, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, after hearing the gospel message, after not obeying the command to repent and believe, to go on in that condition, God considers it, that you are saying that Christ's blood is unholy. You say it is not worthy. You, in effect, spit on the grace of God. He says, you have done despite unto the Holy Spirit. Now, I want you to think very carefully about this. Rejection of Christ is the rejection of the entire Trinity. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. You reject the entire trinity. You reject the Father who sent his Son to die for sin. You reject Jesus Christ who voluntarily came to this earth in human flesh and stepped down and became a servant and then went to the death of the cross. And you look at that and you say, so what? Why is that important? The greatest thing that the Creator did is turned upside down 
by people who are lowly, insignificant, hateful, puny God-rejectors who fancy themselves to be God. I'll just do what I want to do. And they say none of it matters. Now the remarkable irony of this is that all of us meet that description. Did you know that? Every one of us here. I'm not talking about somebody else on the outside of these walls. I'm speaking of everybody in this room. We all meet that description. And yet God was so gracious that he sent his matchless son to die for people that hated him. So how ignorant would we be to think that God would ignore such blatant, disrespectful, blasphemous blasphemous travesty of his goodness and grace and then not punish it. The Father and the Son. And further, the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The one who is in this world, always in the world to convict and convince. And you say to him, I want no part of that. Hebrews says, you have insulted the Spirit of grace. And thus all three persons in the Godhead are offended. God said to disobey the gospel is to be sure of receiving God's retribution. God will repay. That's a frightening warning, and Paul intends it to be. He wanted the Thessalonians to know, God sees all of this. God knows what's going on. He he knows what people are doing to you. Don't think for a minute that God will mess around with people who mess around with his people. Now, let me wrap it up for you. We'll close out the message today. There's more to go. Just as surely as God will repay the wicked for what they do against his people, just as surely he will repay the faithful, the ones that hang in there, the ones that keep on serving Christ no matter what anybody says or what they think. God says there will come a time when you will receive your reward. There will be a time when the lost will receive all that's due them and there will be a time that you as a believer, you will receive all that is due you because of your faith in Jesus Christ. So I want to wrap it up for you by saying you need to know the truth of what God is doing with believers. You, you need to know the truth of why God waits so long. Why there is suffering. Why it is so hard for you to live for Christ. And the truth of that is that God is building you. God's strengthening you. God is assuring you that you belong to him. If you never had a day of trouble, you wouldn't know what God could do. And if you were never troubled, there would be few days you would ever think of God. If the world wasn't against you, you'd soon join the world. And God knows that. And so he submits you to this fire of living in the world to purge you and prepare you and to sanctify you for living in his kingdom. And then let me also conclude by saying that if your church doesn't preach against sin and doesn't tell you about God's righteous judgment, they don't stand for Christ. They don't magnify the work of Christ. They don't believe the love that God has for his people insist upon the absolute need of sanctification. The pastor of the largest church in America says, I don't preach against sin. I don't preach against hell because people feel too badly about themselves already. According to the scriptures, it is impossible for a lost sinner to feel too badly about himself. He's incapable 
of feeling too badly. You know why? Because he suppresses the knowledge of the true God and how much that God hates his sin. So he'll never come to the knowledge of how bad he truly is without reading scripture and having the Holy Spirit speak to his heart. Those who won't preach against sin and hell hate God's righteous vengeance. So Paul says, you that are troubled, you who are persecuted, you who are afflicted, rest with us when? When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. We're going to talk about that part next time. You can rest, but not them. You can rest, but I assure you God's going to wear them out. At the end of our Sunday afternoon services, we've been preaching on the tabernacle, so I I always end the sermon by repeating a line from the old Puritan John Flavel. He said this at the end of many of his sermons, and I want to say this to you this morning. After speaking of the wonderful works of God, John Flavel put in with this statement, Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. And how true, how true that is. Where would we be without Jesus Christ? I can tell you where. Without hope and without God in the world. See now what God has done. Sending his only son, Christ, the beloved one. Jesus is Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you again confessing our sins. We know that we are sinful people. Only by your grace, by your mercy, and in your love would you send Jesus Christ to die for our sins. Lord, help us to think about that great sacrifice that Christ made. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to the heart of someone here today who's heard the gospel message but has been stubborn about coming to Christ, refusing to believe We see very clearly what the Bible says about hearing the gospel message and then rejecting it. Vengeance is coming. We need to settle that in this life before it's too late. But we thank you for your people today who have heard the word of God and perhaps we've spoken just too much about what people already know. But it sure is helpful to be reminded of this, what you saved us from and what's, what's coming and what you promised us. Help us to endure our suffering, our persecution, the troubles that we go through. And to know, Lord, that you are proving our faith and our position in your kingdom by showing that we truly are the people of God through every trial that we endure. Thank you, Lord. We praise you. Bless the name of your Holy Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.